business, um, depending on where you find yourself. So uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we are in a, a teaching series this month called Sabbath Way of Life. And um, our kind of our big idea, just cut right to it, our big idea, uh, two big ideas today for this talk. One is that uh, Sabbath isn't merely a day, uh, it's a way of life. And then secondly, Sabbath isn't just me time, it's we time. So Sabbath is not just a day, it's a way of life. And Sabbath isn't just me time, it's we time. So in case you're new to the idea of Sabbath, or it's been a while, or maybe you grew up in small town Indiana where Sabbath was all about blue laws and prohibitions and places you couldn't go and things you couldn't drink and football that you couldn't watch, uh, we, are, we are kind of uh, redeeming and recapturing the idea of Sabbath as uh, a gift from God. And uh, so the, the, the definition we're using here for this month for a Sabbath way of life is slowing down to create space for regular rhythms of resting in God and His grace. Slowing down to create space for regular rhythms of resting in God and His grace. Last week we talked about uh, Sabbath as a gift. Sabbath, uh, some of the Sabbath commands were given in the book of Exodus uh, in the midst of the people of God being delivered from slavery. And so we said this, this idea of Sabbath was resistance. Sabbath was a resistance. It was a contrast between two narratives or two stories about what it means to be human, right? We have the narrative of the, the way of Pharaoh, which is the way of anxiety and productivity and ceaseless, restless activity. And that's contrasted with the way of Yahweh in the, in the book of Exodus, which is a way of delightful rest, right? Delightful rest. I am a God of rest who is redeeming you from the system of anxiety, liberating you to experience my salvation. And then I'm gonna give you this gift of Sabbath as kind of a token of what it means to be uh, in this new humanity, in this new community. And so in Exodus, you had this regime change from Pharaoh as kind of king or emperor of the people to Yahweh as the one who brings rest. And so he said Sabbath is a gift. And in the same way that Sabbath was a gift to the people of God thousands of years ago, um, it's also a gift to us, right? Because we kind of live the way of Pharaoh, at least it feels like in the West. We, we have what some physicians have called time poverty, right? We're materially rich, but uh, some of us, but uh, time poor. We have this hurry sickness, this idea that um, we, we got to move faster and faster and faster to produce more and more and more, right? The, the lie that we kind of believe is like early in our career, if we'll just work really hard, there'll be rest coming for us. Uh, and those of us in our 40s and 50s know that to be a lie, that the more power, the more privilege, the more opportunity you get, the more it seems that life speeds up and the more efficient we've got to be, Right? And so thank goodness we have technology, which has made all of that just really easy to manage, right? Um, 30 years ago, people were talking, they were like hailing technology as this thing that was going to deliver us from this slavery, and we found that actually technology made it worse, right? And so, so God invites us to experience rest. And, and the idea of Sabbath is um, not just, again, like a day off or like I, I just need a little margin or a little rest. The idea of biblical Sabbath, specifically in Deuteronomy we see, uh, is that it's, it's a way of life. So Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says it like this. Moses imagines that Sabbath is not only a festival day, but also a new social reality that is carried back into days one through six. Remember, for the Jew, uh, Sabbath was the high point of the week. It was not a throwaway day. It was the climax of the week. And all the days, even of the Jewish calendar, were named in reference to Sabbath, right? So Sunday was day one to the Sabbath, Monday was day two to the Sabbath, Tuesday's day three, so there's this sense of anticipation. 
It says people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So the task, according to Moses, I love this, is to seven our lives. It's to harvest the fruit of Sabbath and to see that kind of cascade and overflow the banks so that the rest of our week is transformed, our relationships, right? Our work, and, and again, we said like, work's not a bad thing. I think if we don't have a work problem at SOMA, right? Like uh, some churches, like people don't have a good like theology of work. Our problem is not that we don't love work. It's that we love work too much and we don't love rest enough, at least not enough to do anything significant to change the ways that we live, right? And so, um, so what I want to do today is kind of build off of that uh, idea. So we said Sabbath involves four things, ceasing, the word Shabbat in, uh, in uh, Hebrew there literally means to cease. Uh, resting, once we put down our work, then we rest. Embracing, right? It's not about prohibitions. It's a strategic no so that we can give a strategic yes to better things. It's a strategic no to things that dehumanize us and ways of living that dehumanize us and a yes to life. That's the invitation in the Bible for Sabbath. Um, and then the fourth thing is feasting, right? Enjoying and celebrating, right? Like, having friends over and enjoying life in an unhurried way, right? That's the idea here. So I want to I build off of that, and I want to expand our horizons a little bit by thinking about the bigger picture of rest in the Bible. So today's talk's called Sabbath Ladder, and I want to build out this idea of Sabbath as a way of life. So one of, the, one of the big critiques around Sabbath from the prophets, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, it comes up in almost every prophetic book some critique of Sabbath is that Sabbath, uh, even though it's a gift from God, it can be used selfishly. It can be used for me rather than thinking about the we. So I think of one of the places in Isaiah 58 where this comes up. Uh, Isaiah says to the people, speaking really to the religious leaders, uh, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. So Sabbath is not just about reclaiming like personal rest, although that's really important. We tend to stop there. There's a bigger vision though for Sabbath that moves us from thinking about it as me time only and exclusively to we time. So this isn't just about, again, me taking a vacation, me taking a break from the chores, me taking a break from my, my spouse, me taking a break from my coworkers, me taking a break from annoying people. Uh, this, is, this is about, uh, hypothetically, this is about something bigger that God wants for not only us, but those that are in our circles, right? Those that we oversee, those that we work with, those that we work for, our families, right? Like our roommates, uh, all of that. So um, there's a kind of um, violence about the hurry of our day that harms those around us. And if we're not careful, we can use Sabbath in really selfish ways that actually hurt other people, right? So you could hear last week's sermon and go, oh, I just need to check out. I need to get in the bathtub, you know, do whatever the restful thing is for you. And you can create this little, like, this bubble of Sabbath. And actually, in your reacting to what I said last week, do more harm than good, right? Kind of the helping that kind of hurts. So Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, I'm a Kentucky guy, so he's a Gethsemane guy, says this about uh, violence. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence, and that is activism and overwork. Don't think activism the way we think of activism. He's talking about the hurried life. 
The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. You could think of it like uh, kind of flipping uh, the spiritual disciplines on their side. We tend to take a very horizontal view of the spiritual practices um, like rest and uh, Bible reading and fasting and these 11 practices that we'll be talking about over the next several years. We tend to think of them just in terms of the personal benefits that they bring us. But there's also a horizontal dimension. There are horizontal social implications that we must attend to as we talk about the practices. This next chart, I showed it in the fall, but I'll bring it back up because I don't think many of you have uh, photographic memories. Uh, this kind of uh, describes some of the differences between we, the way we kind of historically have talked about spiritual disciplines. So kind of on the left, the contemporary view of spiritual disciplines is that they are for our own benefit. And you can kind of read down there all the way down to the bottom these are uh, done by individual believers. But when we read the Bible, specifically the prophets in the Old Testament, they flip those, and Jesus was very prone to do this, flip those on their side and say, this isn't just about you. This is about your neighbors. This is about your community. This is about your city. And so spiritual disciplines are also for the well-being of our neighbors. They are also done by the institutional church and other communities out in the world for the renewal of culture and society. Andy Crouch has a great book that I highly recommend called Playing God. And a lot of this talk actually comes out of uh, some reading that I was doing a couple years ago. And this paradigm he calls the Sabbath ladder just really kind of blew my mind. I'd never uh, encountered this before. And so here's what he says about, um, about expanding our circle of rest. If we do not ask these difficult questions, the ones the prophets are asking in, in Amos and Isaiah, and simply settle for piously observing our own private Sabbaths, we run the risk of playing a false god, a god whose leisure is purchased at the price of others' labor and whose abundance comes at the expense of others' deprivation. True Sabbath practice expands in ever-increasing circles until every creature experiences the blessings of both meaningful work and abundant rest. If we are not helping to create and sustain systems that allow for sabbath our own rest will be nothing more than an expression of privilege and power and it will be or should be troubled by the prophet's denunciation denunciation that's immediately where some of us go like i heard that pushback last week like this is just a conversation for upper middle class white people this is just a conversation for business owners this is a conversation for the ruling class the, this is such a bougie conversation some of us might say right like i wish i had the luxury to sabbath well um, i want us to think about this uh, because historically the jews have practiced sabbath during the holocaust the jews practiced the sabbath during the exile 
working class folks and people of all stripes and economic backgrounds have been able to uh, practice the Sabbath in all kinds of adverse conditions across all kinds of global cultures. And so I want us to think about this not as just a conversation for people who have margin, which honestly, even for the ruling class bourgeois, like even that is a myth, right? Like those of us who are uh, business owners and like might be considered those, those people in power, uh, they, they're not like sitting around with a bunch of margin and rest either, right? Like that's kind of a little bit of a lie. But, but the reality is this is a gift for all of us. And so I want to expand our vision here beyond just the Sabbath as a day and to the Sabbath as a way of life. And I want to do that by borrowing Crouch's uh, category or framework of the Sabbath ladder. So let's look here in Leviticus um, at the kind of rhythms of Sabbath, right? The Sabbath ladder starting on the lowest rung. Uh, and really, this is, this is a vision for, um, we talked last week about Sabbath as holy time. Right? God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy in Genesis chapter 2. The idea of holiness, again, is not stuffy and buttoned up uh, prohibitions. The idea of holy is special and unique and set apart and devoted for something awesome. Right? That's the idea of, of holiness. And so these cadences here that we see in the book of Leviticus are invitations to God's holy time. It's like entering an alternative dimension. It's the way the world was designed to flourish. It's the way that you were designed to flourish as a human being. It's the invitation to God's people and Israel to flourish. So it's, it's a vision for how we spend our days, how we spend our weeks, how we spend our years, and how we think about generations, which Annie Dillard says, right, that's what a life is. It's the minutes and the weeks and the hours and the days of our lives. So it's a vision for how we can redeem and see renewal come into our um, our, our everyday life. Now, let me just say this on the front end. Last week when we started Sabbath, some of you were like, that sounds amazing and that sounds crazy, right? Like that is only for monks and pastors who have nothing better to do than sit around and pray, right? Like some of you thought last week was impossible to do a day, a 24-hour day. This is going to take it to another level, right? Like a couple months ago, a, a member of our church invited me to a CrossFit gym uh, here in Broderpool. Now, I know you look at me and think I CrossFit a lot, but I actually don't. Um, not an avid CrossFitter. I'm an avid uh, life of the mind kind of reader. But he invited me to come, free Thursdays. So I go to the gym, and I'm not going to lie, I was super insecure, right? I walk in, and everybody's jacked up. I mean, these guys, men and women, are jacked up. They're muscular. I mean, I didn't see a lot of uh, 40-year-old dads with four kids in there, but uh, I think a lot of people are there two and three times a day. So I, I go in, I'm insecure, I'm talking to the trainer, and I'm like, hey, what, what, what would you recommend for me? Like, I don't want to leave here and, and just have my soul crushed. Like, I, I want to be able to leave here. I still got to pick up kids and parent and all this kind of stuff. And so he said, well, you might need some modifications, right? Modifications basically like you don't know what you're doing uh, and you're terrible at it. So he gives me all these modifications. So to my shame and embarrassment, I modify everything, right? Like I, I need lots of helps. And, and I get done uh, with this routine. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing. Like all the routines are named after women. I don't know why that is. If it's just some kind of male chauvinistic, like, uh, like it's the way we motivate men. It's like, this is Sally and this is Jenny, you know? And so there's all these things. I get done with one of these Jennies or, you know, Emily's or whatever it is. Um, and I just feel, I feel terrible. Even doing the modifications, I'm like, I am tired. And, and then the guy starts pitching me. The trainers are talking about how this particular CrossFit gym, he starts casting vision for the CrossFit games. He's like, we send people to the CrossFit games. 
And I'm like, dude, I can't get through one workout without a modification. And I doubt I'm going to have the motivation to ever be in the CrossFit games, right? Like just whatever. Think what you want to think about me. That's probably not ever going to be my thing. And I know some of us feel that way about Sabbath. Like last week was like your version of the modification. Like if I could just do two hours of rest this week, that'd be awesome. Now you want to go to CrossFit games, okay? We're going to go there though. I want to take and lift your vision to see the CrossFit games of Sabbath and then to think about how we could have a little bit of a Sabbath imagination and begin to play with different um, combinations of these things to think about creating for ourselves and not only for us, but for our neighbors, an oasis of rest. Right? How compelling would it be to be a church that works from our rest, not for our rest? That works from love, not for love, in a culture of exhaustion? How compelling of a witness might that be to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, to our children and our grandchildren and our employees? That's the invitation on the Sabbath letter. So let's start. Just we'll go quickly through these uh, different rungs. The first one we see here, uh, actually, if we go back a couple of pages, uh, is a vision for how we spend our days. It's what uh, the Bible calls gleaning, right? So Leviticus 19, going to hold your finger there in chapter 25 and flip back a few pages to chapter 19. We see this. I want to throw up on the screen while we're reading this, too, uh, this imagery here. Uh, this was painted by a guy named Jean-Francois Millet in the midst of a very kind of busy Uh, Parisian culture many centuries ago, he has this vision. I think it's a beautiful picture of the the community and the grittiness and the rawness uh, envisioned here with gleaning. But hear these words from Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant. I am the Lord, your God. Deuteronomy 24 takes it a step further in verse 19. We see this, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Why? God, that's not efficient. He says, it shall be for, circle that word, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. He said it literally when it falls, the moment it touches the ground, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the poor. It belongs to the fatherless. It belongs to the widow. It belongs to the oppressed. You know the story of Ruth and Naomi. We see a mother who had been widowed with her daughter-in-law, and they, they travel back to Israel, and Boaz her kinsman redeemer, the one who would enter into these situations with vulnerable women. Boaz allows her, he's a a wealthy, generous landowner, right? In those days, uh, land is your wealth, right? Uh, It's the most important asset that you have. And he, 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 he instructs his workers, don't glean out to the edges of the field. Don't maximize your productivity. Your work is not just a commodity to be traded or exploited, Discipline yourself to stop and create room for the poor. And he takes care of Ruth and Naomi. And what's fascinating about that, now that may not seem like a big deal, like what's the big deal about gleaning? One act of generosity opens up redemptive history. Think about the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, like, marries Boaz, and then she has a child who has a child who has a child who happens to be King David, who has a child who has a child who has a child who happens to be Jesus. I mean, 
don't underestimate one little act of faithfulness and how that can, one little act of rest, one little act of Sabbath obedience literally alters redemptive history, all under the sovereignty of God. Just saying. The reality is that we are all gleaners. If we think about it, God in Genesis 1 creates the world and with the snap of a finger, with just one word, he could have perfected the world and, and ushered in final and total and ultimate shalom. But what does God do? God creates space for us to glean, right? I don't know if they ever think about it that way. But God creates and makes room for his creatures to exercise their creative and generative abilities to bring about what he refuses to do on his own. He limits himself to create room for those of us who are, might we say, uh, divinity impoverished. Andy Crouch says it this way, for all of our utter dependence on the creative power of God, he has carved out for us a, a, a habitable environment of dignity, freedom, and possibility. At the edges of the vast fields of stars, we do our little work, sowing what we could never provided for ourselves and harvesting what we have not sown. We are all just The principle here with gleaning is just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Just because I can, because I'm smart enough, because I'm capable enough, because I'm educated enough, because there's an, a market opportunity, right? Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Matter of fact, God would say, you shouldn't. Leave room, create space. And so the question we want to ask ourselves with gleaning is, what can I leave undone today? What can I leave undone today? Again, not to be lazy, and my suspicion is most of us don't have a problem with laziness. Some of us do, but that's not the problem for most of us. We're not saying be lazy, right? We're just saying what could be left undone? We are doing a lot. We are doing more than any other culture and generation of history, right? So what can I leave undone? Here's the key, to create margin for others, to create the opportunity for dignity for others, right? So, so Ruth and Naomi, the idea there was that they were able to go out and gather for themselves a sustainable wage. Instead of getting a handout or charity, they had dignity because they were empowered to go out and work the fields themselves. What can I do to create dignity, to create equality for other people? How can I disadvantage myself so that I can help advantage somebody else? That is the very definition of righteousness in the Old Testament. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, says if you look at, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, which talks a lot about work and rest, the word righteousness, we tend to think of as moral and doing the right thing in terms of my relationship with God. He says righteousness in Proverbs and in the Old Testament more generally, Sadiq is the word there, actually means to disadvantage myself so that I can advantage other people. So, gleaning is the first step on the wrong. Second uh, step we looked at last week are weeks uh, is the Sabbath, right? Well, we talked about that, so we're not going to belabor that. The third rung on the ladder is, uh, gets even crazier. Some of you are like, I can't do gleaning? Okay, you're going to think this is really radical, right? Uh, look, at Levit look back at Levit Leviticus chapter 25, this idea of sabbatical, a Sabbath year. Leviticus 25, the Lord spoke to Moses, when you come into the land that I give you, the land will keep a Sabbath. So God even cares about creation having a Sabbath. The land itself will have a Sabbath. You are not to endlessly and ceaselessly exploit the land. For six years you will sow your field, 
For six years you will prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. Work hard, he says, in those six years. But in the seventh year there will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It will be a year, an entire year of rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servants, and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, even your animals, and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. This is crazy. This is crazy. The cattle, the animals get to rest. The children get to rest. The the workers get to rest. The owners get to rest. Everybody is commanded to let the ground lie fallow. Now we know agriculturally, like modern science knows, there is a value to resting land, to alternating land. There is a nutritional value to the land to allow chemical processes to to take place to rebuild the vitality and generativity of land, right? But God's vision here is for so much more, right? Like in that time, the poor had access to go out in the fields and eat the food that they did not sow, right? There's there's this commandment here to save and to steward, but this commandment comes with the provision. God says, I will rain down miracles from heaven on you. If you will obey this command, I promise I will always take care of you. So again, just like last week, it's an invitation to trust God. Do we trust God with our work enough to rest for a whole year? Now, there's benefits to sabbatical, right? All kinds of benefits. Some things I was thinking about this week in terms of like this kind of mentality for the people of God for us. One thing is I think sabbatical, this idea of seven years, sabbatical year, reminds all of us that we're not indispensable. We're not indispensable, right? Like, uh, there's going to come a day when I'm going to quit or I'm going to get fired and somebody else is going to be the pastor of this church, right? Like, I am not indispensable. You are not indispensable. There will come a day when you will be dispensed with and somebody else will take your place, right? We are not dispensable. It's also an invitation for us to deepen our vocation as human beings, not human doings. I am more than what I do in this job, right? So for the Israelites, this was an opportunity for farmers to explore other aspects of what it meant to be human, right? To spend a year uh, traveling, to spend a year studying. They would read the law uh, together in its entirety, right? It's a time for worship. It's a time for play, for cultivating other interests, other vocations, and saying, I am not just a marketing person, right? I am not just a private equity person. I'm not just a mom. I'm not just a dad. I am a human being created in the image of God to flourish in all kinds of ways. And the third thing we see is um, it can be a time for ongoing creativity and productivity that you bring back with you once you come back from Sabbath, sabbatical. There's all kinds of research that shows that academic sabbaticals have long-term effects that when somebody comes back from a sabbatical, they are much more productive, much more creative, much more innovative than before they left, and not just in the year that they came back, but literally for years to come, you see an increase in creativity, productivity, longevity, right? All of those things are there because we're building a strong kind of inner game that takes us for the long game. I was thinking about this. I was talking to some after the last service. Um, I I don't think it's an accident that um, seven years is here, right? You think about like the seven-year crash in marriage, 
You think about seven years as a time when uh, most founders leave their companies or go IPO, right? There's something to this idea that we can only sustain this kind of hurried pace of life for so long before we crash. Even the best of us with endurance and strength can only go so long, right? I think about like seven years of parenting and how tired some of you moms and dads are, right? Some of you are like seven years. I've got, I'm seven months in, you know, but seven years of like grad school and you're ready to like just be done. You're burned out and tired and exhausted. Now, here's the thing. We think this is impossible, but uh, studies show Fast Company has an article, had an article recently uh, that said that 19 to 23% of the companies they studied actually have sabbatical policies of some sort. Now, most of those are not paid, uh, but the reality is that a lot of them do. Let me throw up some of the companies that we see that have generous sabbatical policies, particularly those that are outside of America, right? So um, we see this a lot in uh, Europe, for instance. But uh, some of these companies are local companies like Salesforce. Uh, I was surprised to see McDonald's on there, right? Like, did you know that McDonald's is one of the first companies in America to have a sabbatical policy? After you work there 10 years, you get a paid sabbatical leave, right? So if you love justice, stop hating on McDonald's. Andy Crouch brings out a good thought experiment in his book. Um, he says, if this seems impossible to you, let's, let's think about the way that we think about um, the idea of saving for a time of rest. We do that. We have a thought category for that in the West. We call it retirement, right? Which are, we're all thinking about, right? And so he says, if you were to start working at 21 and you were to keep working until you were 69 and you retired at 69, and let's say um, you know, you're in really good shape and you're in really good health, Maybe you think of having about eight years of active retirement before your body begins to break down in your late 70s and you're no longer able to do those things that you could do uh, early on in retirement. So he says, think about that. 48 years of work for eight years of active rest. Do you see a ratio there? One to six. He says, how much different would it be if instead of thinking about the end of our life being the most generative and the most restful, if we actually saved and built that into, which again, for many of us, we're never going to save enough to have that kind of retirement anyways. He says, what if we begin to stagger those sabbaticals throughout our lives? Just again, a thought experiment. I, like, I don't know how we would do this, right? Like, we live in a culture that may not allow us to do this, but he said, I just want us to see how odd the situation we find ourselves in right? Like many of us think, like, if I'm going to have a sabbatical rest, I've got to move to Sweden or Denmark, right? Like, they do that well. The point is, um, it, it could be. We could imagine a different scenario. We could imagine something different for our family. We could imagine something different for our division of the company. We could imagine something different for our nonprofit. We could imagine something different for our grandkids. We could imagine something different for our marriages. We could imagine something different for our university. We could imagine something different for our church. Because we don't do this very well, if we're honest. Crouch says it like this. Why can't we imagine a sabbatical year being possible for every image bearer? For students in the midst of their years of schooling, do you know what the depression and suicide rates are for grad students? It is staggering. Laborers after six years of hard work, fast food workers who live from paycheck to paycheck, or CEOs who require key man insurance that implies their utter indispensability. The fault is not in the realism of the biblical pattern of life, but our shared lack of faith 
and imagination for what could be, and our reluctance to work and save diligently in the six years in order to provide a way for our work to lie fallow in the seventh. Unless you think this just sounds crazy because we live in modern America, if you go on to read in Leviticus 25, they also shook their fists at God and said, this sounds crazy. And God says, you don't trust me. Trust me, and I will always, always come through for you. Now, if that's not crazy enough, there's one more. Jubilee. Jubilee. He goes on to describe in Leviticus 25 here quickly, starting in verse 8. Every seven Sabbath years, you are to obey a jubilee. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then, I love this, you will sound the loud trumpet. Literally, get out the shofar and go crazy, right? Like blow, the word uh, jubilee actually means horn, right? It's like blow the horn, this is going to blow your minds. On the day of atonement, that's key, circle that. On the day of forgiveness, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate or set apart the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Everyone is equal on the, on the year of Jubilee. It will be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property. Each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a Jubilee. It will be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And then down in verse 17, you shall not wrong one another, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The year of Jubilee was a year of release. It was a year of return and restoration. It was a year of reset, literally resetting generational problems, generational exploitation, generational poverty, right? It was an opportunity to set all things to right, to equal out everything. People uh, that were, had sold themselves into uh, indentured servitude were released. So if you want a modern-day equivalent of indentured servitude, think about those of you that have college debt, okay? Think about those of you that have massive credit card debt and consumer debts you can't pay back. Imagine that tomorrow is ripped up and gone. The land is returned to the original household owners, right? This is about protecting the economic viability of families. You had tribes, you had clans, and you had the households. This is a way to protect families, right? Families from being exploited and oppressed over multiple generations. And there were blessings here for both the powerful and the powerless. The powerless, those who had fallen onto hard times either through poor decision-making, or weather patterns that were outside of their control, they are released from the guilt and the shame of feeling less than. Now, here's the thing we don't often think about. This is also a blessing for the ruling class and the powerful. You think it's easy to hold those debts over people for multiple decades? There's a blessing of being released from the, the shame and the guilt and the bitterness and resentment that can crop up between wealthy and poor. It puts everybody on equal footing and allows forgiveness for everybody. No longer do I have to feel ashamed for my uh, accumulation of wealth. Everything's reset. Everything's new. Everything's restored. 
This idea here is uh, economically about inalienability. The land could not be sold and traded as a commercial asset. And what that did economically and socially was it dealt with poverty. Because here's the thing. Um, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. What God is saying in Jubilee is it better not be the same poor. The poor will always be with you. There will always be poor people. You will never, ever on this side of heaven and the new earth and the new uh, kingdom of God eradicate poverty. But it better not be the same from one generation to the next. The bigger thing here that God is inviting them to see in Jubilee is the theological perspective. The, the thing that they're supposed to learn by forgiving debts, by restoring a land, and, and by this equality principle is, is really more about God than it is about socioeconomic theory and, and applied political science, right? There's all kinds of intricate laws, but here's the thing you hear over and over and over again through, it is a drumbeat through Exodus, it is a drumbeat through Leviticus, is the Jubilee and the Sabbath year and the gleaning and all of that is most fundamentally about God. It is about God. Here's what we learned through the Jubilee, that it is God's land. God owns all land. It is all his, right? We see that in Exodus 15, but it's gifted to us as an inheritance. We don't own the land. Like, if you own land, you own it as a steward, not as an owner, right? God owns all land. These are God's people. They're not to be exploited as commodities. They're not to be traded. We're not to think of ourselves as superior to other people. People have inherent dignity and value and worth. They belong to God. That's why God keeps saying, I am the Lord your God. You don't belong to, nor are you subservient ultimately to wealthy landowners. You're mine. Wealthy landowners, you don't own your people. They belong to me. It's God's time, right? It's God's time. God's disrupting time, the flow of time. You see, in our minds, time flows, and it's eternal, right? And it's about the accumulation of wealth from one generation to the next, power from one generation to the next, privilege from one generation to the next. God disrupts all of that, and he says, I am sovereign over time. Time belongs to me. The cumulative effect of wealth and money and power is not eternal. All power and wealth and privilege belongs to me. And then it's ultimately about God's forgiveness, right? That's why it was the, the, the horn was blown on the day of forgiveness, signalizing that this is about more than just the canceling of financial debts. This is the canceling of spiritual debt. This is the canceling of guilt and shame and fear and anger and loneliness and all the things that hold us back from our full potential as God's beloved children. And God is saying with that statement, to know yourself forgiven by God was to issue immediately in practical remission of the debt and the bondage of others. To withhold forgiveness from somebody else is to not understand that you yourself have been forgiven. And so it serves as a governor on the social norms of the community over generations. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jubilee, and we'll go to close. There's no evidence in the Bible that Jubilee was ever practiced. <laughs> we don't ever read about one ever being practiced. We, we see a lot of critiques, we see a lot of aspirations towards it, but there's no evidence that it was ever practiced, likely because the Jews um, got invaded and there was all kinds of social disruption and confiscation of property and exile, so likely they couldn't practice it, but the idea uh, is still valid. The idea is still there, and I want to point us towards uh, the Sabbath imagination of the Bible here as we close. I want us to think about what this could look like for us. I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what this looks like for you, but here's what I do know. 
Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath ladder is an opportunity for us to remember. Remember that God owns everything. Remember that God owns time, that God owns us, that God is a generous father, right? That God wants forgiveness for his people. It's an opportunity for us to remember all of that. And as we remember all of that that's happened to us and what God's done to us and what God's done over time, it's an opportunity for us to anticipate a new future, to anticipate a new way of being in the world. You want to know why I say that? Because we have uh, just a few thousand years later, one of the first sermons of Jesus, Luke chapter 4. Notice what Jesus says. First sermon out of the gate. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, sound familiar, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor which is a direct quote from Isaiah 61, which is a direct quote from Leviticus 25. Jesus is talking about jubilee. He's saying the jubilee is here. Sabbath rest is here. I am jubilee. I have come to usher in full flourishing, right? Spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, political, all that, that, that the Bible is describing, these echoes of Sabbath that we see throughout the Bible that are you know, we, we ultimately, we see the people of Israel fail. They fail. They don't keep the Sabbath. But here's the good news. We don't either. And God has made provision for that in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He invites us to experience him as the climax of Jubilee, as the fullness of Jubilee. And then he says, now you go as my people and begin to explore what it could look like to take Jubilee into community to unleash jubilee in your neighborhoods, to unleash jubilee in your missional communities, to unleash jubilee in your families. I mean, how would this impact the way that we think about our life together if we embrace, not just kind of like tolerated or sighed or just like, yeah, I need to rest sometime, but if we really embraced a Sabbath way of life, if we really embrace jubilee and the concepts of, of gleaning and a weekly Sabbath, like how would that change the way that you think about church? How would that change your marriage? How would that change the way you interact with your roommates and the kind of pace and the cadences that you create to support your way of life? How would that change our Sunday gatherings? How would that change our church structures? We're coming up on seven years as a church. How would that change the way we think about 2019? How would that change our relationships? How would that change the way we love the poor? Some of us are going to have the opportunity over the next several years to have positions of power where you literally have the opportunity to offer this way of life to people who work for you your division leaders, your managers, your directors, your business owners, your nonprofit leaders. You're going to have the opportunity to, uh, to choose a Sabbath way of life or not. And the question you're going to have to confront is, do I trust God enough to do that? Do I really believe that less could be more in terms of the economy of God? And, and, and then how do I integrate that? The fun thing is, think about creating policies that will blow your employees' minds. Think about generous leaves of absence for creativity and imagination for each image bearer that's under your care. 
Think about how fun that would be to create work policies and strategic plans that didn't just look at profitability but considered people as part of the bottom line, as the double bottom line, profits and people. Now, some of you are like, yeah, whatever, like, I'm just a cog in the system. That's not me. Okay, I get it. Like, not all of us are going to be business owners. Um, first, I would say lift your imagination a little bit. Like, you should want to be, maybe, maybe have a little bit more faith and hope. But even if you're not, you, you feel trapped in the system, all of us have microspheres where we control our rhythms of rest and work. We have our neighborhood association. How are we doing with our children? How are we doing with our spouses? Right? How are we doing um, in our workplace? Right? Like we can create little, little respites in the midst of a broken system. And we all have those little spheres of influence. Um, and we can always leave our jobs. <laughs> Right? Like my brother in law worked for a long time for a large, uh, a big five accounting firm, and just, it was just soul crushing the, the rhythms and the pace and the expectations of working for this firm. He came home miserable just year after year after year. And finally, this last year, he quit his job. He said, No more. I'm not doing it anymore. I want to be at home with my kids. I want to experience rest. I want to be a whole human being. And this system is not allowing me with all of its regulatory, globalized stuff that goes on in that world. He said, I'm going to work for a smaller accounting firm, take a pay cut, but I want something bigger for my life and family. Maybe that's an option for some of us. Whatever it is, I just want to open up your imagination and just say, Are we even asking the questions? Do we even believe that it could be different? Do we honestly want it to be different? Because it's going to mean maybe less productivity. Maybe, maybe it's going to mean less wealth. Maybe it's going to cut into the inheritance we want to leave to our kids. But we want something greater. We want a bigger definition of wealth than just material. Let me throw a couple of images on the screen just to stoke your imagination as we close. One is this idea of uh, our church being a Sabbath startup. What if we were a startup? What if this was just kind of like a, a, an ec a private equity investment or this is like a venture? We were venture capitalists and we are all owners of this church and we are all thinking about investing in a different way of being in the world. What if this church was a startup studio that pushed out new ventures and that gave birth to new companies and, and new kind of business owners and new uh, moms and dads who were creating a Sabbath way of life for their people, right? What if we were training, we were an accelerator that, that trains startups as they're getting out and getting going and we're teaching them what it looks like from the very beginning to start with Sabbath? What if we were an incubator, a co-working space, and as we gather here week in and week out, we actually talked to each other, encouraged each other around areas of rest. Like, we're here talking anyways. Let's dial up the conversation from superficial chattiness to intentionality about our rest. Like, when was the last time you showed up at church and somebody asked you either the two taboos are uh, money, how much do you make and how do you spend it, and rest, how much are you resting and how much do you sleep? We don't talk about those things in the church, but what if we did? And think about how different things could be for us. The other idea, James, do you have that? Can you bring that up to me? The other idea is uh, the idea that comes from kids of a Rubik's Cube, right? The Rubik's Cube, the basic idea with the Rubik's Cube, this one's solved. I did not solve it. Full transparency, my son did. Um, but the Rubik's Cube, there are 43 quintillion ways to mix this up. But here's the crazy thing about a kid in a Rubik's Cube. Every 12-year-old knows that there is a formula to the Rubik's Cube. So that no matter how it's mixed up, if I give him the Rubik's Cube, he can solve the Rubik's Cube. Because there's a formula, no matter how it's presented, he knows how to work it and, and, and twist it around and, and move it around 
And, and so, so it starts with a color, and then you get that color going, and you move that color around, and I don't know how it works, but at the end, it looks like this. <laughs> now, what's, what's, what's problematic is sometimes we can't imagine Sabbath because we are comparing against other cultures. We're comparing against the mixed-up ways, and we know that every culture is broken. And so for some of us, we nostalgically look, nostalgically look to the past, and we're like, we need to go back to blue laws. That was when God was really moving. Okay, that was broken too, right? Uh, some of us look at Sweden, and we're like, we need to be more like Sweden. Okay, that's broken too. If you lived in Sweden or Iceland or Greenland, you would still be messed up, and you would still be restless, right? Like, that is not the answer, become Sweden or Denmark, necessarily. Maybe it is. I don't think so, okay? But the point is, every culture is broken, so instead of comparing to other cultures, what if we compared to God's word and scripture and said, what would it look like for us to move more towards this? There's not a perfect one, but there can be healthier ones. There can be better ones that we could hand off to our children and to our grandchildren. So the, the point is, the other thing about the Rubik's Cube is, it's all interconnected. And what I see with Sabbath is, if we care about justice, we should care about Sabbath. If we care about human flourishing, we should care about, because wrapped up in Sabbath are conversations about money, our conversations about power, our conversations about gender, our conversations about race, our conversations about socioeconomics, it's all interconnected. And the reason I think we don't want to talk about Sabbath is because we don't want to talk about those things. So Sabbath can be an entry point to expose the idols of our heart, the idols of our culture, and to begin to reimagine what it would look like for us to experience the renewal that God has for us as his people. All right, I need to be done. Let's pray, and let's ask for God's help as we think about becoming a people of rest. God is inviting us to be a people of rest in a world of exhaustion. What would it look like for us to have and reclaim a Sabbath imagination for being that kind of people by God's grace. That's what God has for us. God, we pray, Father, we pray in your goodness and in your grace that you would remind us that we are not slaves. We are not commodities to be traded. We are not tokens of some market system. We are human beings created in the image of a God who rests, inviting us to be a people of rest. And so, God, would you teach us by your mercy with new eyes and new hearts and new imaginations what it could look like for us to trust you, not just with our work, but also with our rest. Teach us together as a community to experiment, to turn these different combinations and permutations around to see how we, at least here at SOMA, might be a more faithful representation of what it looks like to be a people of rest in a city that is restless. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to invite you to come.